My next guest is one of the legends of the industry, and his name is Tony Knoll. Good morning, Tony. Oh, no legend. I'm just a normal bloke. <laughs> <laughs> what a great start. <laughs> Hi, Tony. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> you are, mate, you are a legend. You, you, you actually worked back in the days uh, at Uncle Dance, didn't you? I month stint at um, Alfington many years ago, and the... My manager at the time has become one of my sort of lifelong best mates, Peter Johns, who you also know. Yeah, I mean, the the amazing thing about that store was there was also a young whippersnapper pushing boxes around by the name of Steve Donahue, who's now the CEO of Endeavour Drinks. And so I always show, when I get new new kids working at the store, I always take them out the back and I show them this photo and I say, that bloke down there, he was doing your job and now he's earning quite a lot more than I will ever earn. But, yeah, there is – there is. how many Dans were there at that stage? That was pre-Woolworths, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, no, there weren't very many. The, the funniest employee at the time was the guy who used to play cricket in the warehouse instead of um, stocking the shelves, and that was Peter Hellier. <laughs> That's right. So Pete Hellier, who's still wow. one of my customers there today, Pete and Bridge, and um, – it was through Pete that we got Merrick Watts on the show actually a while back, and I have yeah. spoken to his wife Jill. I'm trying to get Pete on, and because he's he's right. got good taste in wine, he's he's a busy fellow though. He he is a clever guy. He is a very clever guy, but, and I love seeing Merrick and uh, and Peter spar off each other. But so Tony, um, he played a lot of cricket, didn't do a lot of work, is what I'm thinking. No, well, I don't actually remember him doing any work, but um, I'm sure he wasn't <laughs> getting paid too much by the hour. But it was yeah. sort of a good first staff morale. And then when he started becoming earning a living as a comedian, I, I was pretty shocked, but he seems to have done all right since then. <laughs> well, he was actually working at Dan's when Will gave him his first gig on the Glass House. So, ah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, right. and, that, and then he obviously didn't need Dan's anymore, but he still comes in. In fact, his son, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but his son works for Dan Murphy's now too. So a bit of a family oh, affair. Wow. Now, the, the reason I you popped in, onto my radar, Tony, was this amazing post I saw on Instagram uh, from L'Hotel Gitan, which is the Heathcote Region Wine Dinner on Tuesday the 26th of July. Now, before I spruik oh. it too much, are there any tickets left? Um, I'm actually not sure because the sales go direct to the restaurant, but I, I think that there would be because we pretty much only sort of went, uh, launched it with all the details and the full lineup of wines because um, I've saw some older Jasper Hill wines for that dinner that you probably noticed. Well, th- that's um, right. Yeah, we only sort of launched it last week, so I would think there still would be some tickets available. Yeah, it should be a really great night because um, in a previous life, I also worked as one of the original sommeliers at Jacques Ramon's restaurant many years ago. Did you? um, I was lucky enough to um, eat a lot of Jacques food and be exposed to a lot of Jacques food. And and then it's a really random coincidence, but when we bought our current house, I didn't realise that we... We're living in the same street as Jacques and Cathy Raymond, which is a very, very random coincidence. <laughs> well, for those listeners who aren't in Victoria, I mean, he's one of our most famous chefs here. Yeah, I mean, Jacques Raymond's restaurant was a three-hatted restaurant probably for maybe, you know, between 10 to 15 years. And, um, yeah, he's, he's one of the great chefs in the country and his children have continued that great hospitality tradition um, with three restaurants of their own. And even though Jacques... Uh, I think would be in his sort of maybe mid to late seventies. He still occasionally uh, goes into the, to the to the restaurants and works. And he actually puts the he put the menu together for this function. And they do a couple of the odd they do the odd function at wineries. I think they did one at Curly Flat recently. And Jacques actually went up and cooked the food himself. Really? So 
he's still active um, as That's a awesome. chef, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, Tony, so the, it's on Tuesday, the twenty sixth of July, seven p.m. Now, Jill, check this out: one hundred and eighty five bucks a person, right? There's one, right. two, three, four, five courses, all served with two wines each, and it's a Heathcote Region wow. wine dinner. Tony, talk us through the first two wines: oh seven seventeen. I mean, it's it, it's quite a unique opportunity to try Jasper Hill wines with that much age, and I. I spoke to, to Ed about this dinner and he said, look, I'd like to do a, a, a young and an old. And then I wanted to do something that was old to really show how well Jasper Hill can age and, and to really, you know, show what they look like with that amount of age. And that's why we went that old. So yep. um, I don't know if you had a Bo Peep at my Instagram on Friday. But I'm looking at it right now. Okay, well, I was actually up at Jasper Hill on Friday and we did 20 vintages of George's Paddock. Amazing. So wow. uh, I've been very privileged. I've worked with those guys for about 28 years and um, I've been very privileged to go to two tastings prior to Friday where we've tasted every vintage of Shiraz that Ron's ever made from both George's and Emily's Paddock. Unreal. And it's just an amazing opportunity to be given access to, to try wines like that. It's incredible. Uh, can I just ask, where is it? If, if you're online, where can you actually find how to get tickets? I'm just trying to see if there are any available. Um, you just have to log on to the website for uh, Bistro Gitan uh, or Lotel Gitan or Frederick, any of the three. I, I think they've got their own individual websites, but um, if you look at any of the websites of the restaurants, you'll you'll be able to buy tickets from direct from the website or just call the okay. restaurant direct. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. it's up on the Hotels Yatan um, one. With it's got ah. the menu and everything. So yeah, I mean, there's there's back vintages of lots of stuff there. But let's just because you are the so the reason you know so much about Jasper, of course, is you're the distributor for Jasper Hill Wines. And I don't know, Jill, have we had Ron on at some point or or Emily? Uh, look, I think I'm, I'm not sure. It would have been quite a while ago. Yeah. So just tell I'll us get them on. tell us a little bit about uh, Ron, Tony. Um, Ron, Ron was a really is a really unique man because he actually worked as a food scientist, and prior to to, to being a vineyard, he he was working um, yeah, in in a company that was using a lot of chemicals and things like that. And so he, he what he thought after doing that for a while, he wanted to grow grapes biodynamically. So he wanted to grow something that he could use without the addition of anything artificial whatsoever. And he yeah. was driving through Heathcote a lot. And then one day he was driving through Heathcote and he saw this cutting in the soil through a hill. And the soil looked really fertile and healthy. And he did a bit more research and he quickly learned that there's two tectonic plates that rubbed together um, millions of years ago. And where they've rubbed together, they've left this little narrow channel of soil and Mount Ida there nearby erupted the volcano and it left this layer of volcanic soil in this narrow cor corridor that we call, a it's called Cambrian soil because of the age of the soil. And it's left this little narrow corridor of this incredibly fertile soil right sort of through this, the line of Heathcote. And he found a vineyard for sale there. And he approached the guy who owned the vineyard, an Italian guy, and he said, what, what variety is, is it have you got planted here? Because he sort of thought Shiraz would be the thing to do there. Yep. And the guy said to him, I don't know what the variety is, but it ends in Z. And um, <laughs> so Ron said, is it, is it Shiraz? And he said, yeah, I think that's sounds like what it is so he bought the he bought emily's paddock from this little italian bloke and then and then basically really encouraged the vines a bit more with you know a bit more natural fertilization and 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 looking after the the vineyard a bit more and then thought well this is definitely going to be a goer so then he bought another vineyard down the road so george's paddock is 1k down the road and um and planted a much larger vineyard so on george's paddock he planted riesling and shiraz and then later semion and nebbiolo but basically, he's always had a, a biodynamic philosophy um, without getting 
actually certified biodynamic. He's always used biodynamic principles because Ron's attitude is what is in the glass is what counts. It doesn't matter what's written on the label. Um, you know, he sort of thinks that actions speak louder than words. So when you taste the wine, that gives you the, the true indication of what they're doing, not, not any classification saying this is how we do it or this is what we do. He just wants the wine to speak for itself. It's quite funny how the universe, you know, conspires to uh, to just say, like, we are going to ensure that this little small pocket is discovered. It is going to create sensational wines. We're going to get someone who's completely clueless to come along and just work it out because it's something that ends with a Z. Did not mean clueless. You know my point. <laughs> yeah. But it's just fascinating yeah, no, no. how the universe does conspire <laughs> in that way. No, no, it's, it's it's sort of really unique, this little narrow corridor of soil and like quite a lot of other people have, have you know, bought land and planted grapes on the, on this Cambrian soil and are doing what Ron's doing and a couple of other vineyards. So on that at, on that dinner, for example, we're also going to feature some wines from um, Tellurian um, that you guys will probably be familiar with. Yep. And and those guys are pretty were pretty happy to admit that they were inspired by what Ron was doing, and that that really encouraged them to to also plant a vineyard. Uh, and there are also Adam Foster's wines from Cirami. Adam's one of the most thoughtful winemakers going around. He's a gentleman, and his wines are incredible. I am so proud to have them at Dan's. We have the Demi, and we have the the XV Shiraz, and I think his seventeen Hugo will be coming out soon. And lucky enough to have his La La wines as well. When I visited Ron and Elva years ago and I took him a bottle of wine, I think it was Michelle Chapoutier's birthday and they bought a bottle of wine from me. I took it up there. Ron very proudly showed me a map, Tony, of that, that Cambrian soil and, you know, very, very another very gentle and thoughtful man. But it's not him that's, you know, it's a family affair, isn't it? It's a 100% family affair and it's basically Emily is Emily and her husband Nick are basically running the vineyards and making the wine now and, and Ron is you know, sort of retired, but Ron is around and still lives on the property and is there, you know, whenever they need to consult him for, for whatever reason it is. Um, and it's still very active. So like, for example, on Friday, I took a couple of my customers up there that own a couple of restaurants and, um, and we, we sat down and tasted all the wines with Ron and then, and then Emily and Nick gave us a tour around the vineyard. So Ron's still very actively involved, but it's, it's, it, yeah, it's definitely a family business for sure. Um, I've got a question just about Moore Street Wines itself. Can you actually explain uh, the idea behind the philosophy of Moore Street Wines? Um, yeah, so I started Moore Street Wines, I think it's eight, yeah, 18 years ago, um, mm. after working for another sort of larger wholesale distributor um, and we we're doing lots of different things. But then when I had the opportunity to have my own business, I, I just wanted to work with with vignerons like Ron. So I wanted to work with people that live on the land, that grow the grapes and make the wine. And then as as their distributor, I've got one person that I can look in the eye and deal with and know exactly, you know, that we're on the same page with everything. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to deal with people that, uh, that are really in sync with the land. So people that, you know, in a perfect world, if they're doing biodynamics, that's fantastic. But people that are really trying to, to grow fruit, which is, is an example of their patch of dirt, what their patch of dirt gives them without really a lot of intervention. And so I sort of went down that path and I've been lucky enough that um, it's sort of grown a little bit over the years and I've managed to connect with some other sort of like-minded people where I've got to the point now where I've got a really nice little business that is a family business with me too because my wife's an accountant so she looks after all the financial stuff which is great because that doesn't interest me. Um, <laughs> and I'm working working with this really great little bunch um, of vineyards and they all get on really well. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of happy story really.
So I guess what you're saying is that the actual role of the winemaker is in truth actually uh, the role of a vigneron. They're, they're not really exclusive in any way, shape or form. Ron, Ron sort of sums it up and um, he says basically what his job to do is his, his most important role is to have the to pick the fruit on the right day to get the fruit in the winery and then not to stuff it up because he calls him he on his business card it says vigneron all he considers himself is a grape grower and basically the winemaking you know the way he talks about it it will it will pretty much take care of itself if you pick the fruit at the right time and you've grown the fruit in the right way and the fruit comes in in great condition then really hmm. your job is just to not make a mistake with it in the winery yeah, I, th- I I heard it described to me once, Tony, as someone who was like a more like a grape shepherd. They're just moving juice around at some point and and mm-hmm. letting it do its own thing. And I think the hardest thing about making wine is not making it. <laughs> you know, is to let it. It's make so it, true. It's exactly right. To let it make itself. Um, that, that's exactly the whole point. That that and they're they're the sort of people that I want to work with. People that are so invested in in the selection that they've made with their location and the grape varieties that they've chosen to you know to to give an indication of what they can do with their weather conditions on their site um that's the, that's the real interest and then and then from there basically it's to, it's a different interpretation that the weather provides them every year on that mm. fruit the weather and the season will give them a different interpretation of their grapes um, and if they make the right decision to pick them at the right time, then hopefully everything falls into place. Yeah, and then the, the wine itself is almost like a report card on, on all of those different things. Speaking of, of Moore Street wines, though, you've got some of the... I think you've got some of the most excellent producers going around. So let's start mm. with Jembrook Hill. Tell us a bit about Jembrook Hill. Um, Jembrook Hill is another... Similar to Jasper Hill, it has another um, fantastic vineyard that's gone through generational change. So Ian Marks, um, was a, a second-generation Collins Street dentist who used to do my teeth many years ago, actually. And, um, <laughs> Is that why they look so good, then, mate? <laughs> oh, they're okay. There's a few veneers in there, but, you know. They look okay. great. Um, <laughs> Big smile. Um, uh, but he's, he was very lucky that he had um, three children, and the youngest of his children, his son, developed an interest and studied winemaking and then went overseas and worked for a number of different people before coming back to work in the family business. And his son, Andrew, who, who now makes the wines, has, has basically taken it to a whole nother level because not only is he is he looking after the vines at Jembrook Hill and making those wines, he's got his own label that he started when he first came back to the family business called the Wanderer Wines. And um, he's got some friends in Spain that he was making um, some wines in Spain under that label and a few other wines. But then he, about eight years ago, he decided that he still wanted to try something else and he, he set up the MGC Gin Company and started yep. distilling gin. And now, now that the MGC gin business is bigger than the vineyard business, and he's had to build an entire another building on the property to put his stills and do all the gin distillation. So that business yeah. has gone to a whole another level with generational change, which is a, a really fantastic story because I started working with his father, and now I'm working with Andrew, and it's 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 just the same with Emily. And I started working with Ron and Elva, and now I'm working with Emily and her husband Nick. So it's sort of fantastic to see full generational change take place in a really positive way yeah and and congratulations to you for you know you you've had a vision for your business i will say to listeners mgc melbourne gin company gin which slightly by a couple of months predates the old four pillars and we love those guys but the mgc gin is an absolute perler yeah, it's it's funny because I I was out on the road showing some wines with with Andrew Marks and and we were chatting about things and I said oh how's it going have you got enough help and everything he said well I've sort of I haven't really got enough workers but I'm also going to start um, I'm toying around with a 
with a still and I'm making some gins and I'm working on this concept for a gin. And I said, so at the time I said, how on earth do you have time for that? Like, is that something you really want to pursue? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think it will work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think it'll work. And there were probably, I think uh, they've told me at um, Four Pillars before, there were like, well, Cam said there were like four or five distilleries doing gin in Australia at that stage. And now there's like 120 or 130 or something. Mm. And it's not that funny for Andrew, but Andrew's main problem in the last eight years with MGC Gin is whether he can make enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah, it's it is yeah. a very nice gin. However, I will say that his, you know, Yarra Valley Pinot Noir is just outstanding. Great value for money. We touched on one of your other producers that you do distribute in Victoria before, Jeff Grosset. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Grosset wines. Well, Jeff, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, Amazing. I'm very lucky to to work with a number of the people I work with, but I'm especially lucky to work with someone like Jeff because Jeff is absolutely obsessed with making the best wine he possibly can, mm. to the point where he changes things every year. He's constantly changing and evolving, and I mean, he's done so many things. You know, I could list, you know, things that he's achieved over the years for half an hour, but. Um, he was the inaugural winemaker that Gourmet Traveller decided to give their Winemaker of the Year award when they first started that award in the very first place because I think they <laughs> wanted to give it to someone to give the, the, the award kudos and they yeah. gave it to him. And awesome. he was the first Australian winemaker to put all his premium wine, but particularly red wine, under screw cap in the year 2000 mm. when the screw cap revolution was very early um, in its piece here and it was just getting going, but he you know, was very determined straight away that he wanted to have his wine sealed with a closure that would 100% guarantee the quality of the wine. And he moved very, very early. And a lot of people, you know, sort of thought he was crazy at the time. And even to the point where the tooth that he, so he makes a Cabernet blend off a 580 uh, metre elevation vineyard, the highest point in the Clare Valley. He leases a small little plot of land from a farmer who's got thousands of acres of land on this big grazing property. And he he's, makes this, this guy Cabernet blend which is 85% Cab Sav and 15% um, Cabernet Franc, and it's this really beautiful, aromatic, long-lived Cabernet. And he put that under screw cap, and a lot of people said he was crazy. And so the initial time, the initial vintage that went under screw cap in 2000, he bottled half under screw cap and half under cork because yep. we were so worried that people wouldn't think that it was the right thing to do to put it under screw cap. And so when he sent me my allocation, he said, look, I'm just going to have to send you half of your stock in cork and half in screw cap. And... Um, Basically, I told all my customers, you know, that I thought the screw cap was the way to go, and so all the screw cap wine sold first. Yeah. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, he's just he's just an he's an amazing guy. So basically, in 1980, he bought some land and he decided that he wanted to have two separate vineyards and make Riesling the exact same way from two separate vineyards that had slightly different soils, and the taste of the wine would be different to reflect the soils from where the grapes were grown. Yeah. And he started doing that in 1981. Wow. And the first sort of three years that he made these two dry Rieslings, so he made, you know, Grosset Springvale Riesling and, and it was called Grosset Waterville back then, Grosset Waterville Riesling, Grosset Polish Riesling. No one wanted the wines because dry <laughs> Riesling wasn't cool then and no one was drinking it. So <laughs> It's, it's crazy to see the change. <laughs> yeah, so what, what he had to do with the first couple of years is he had to put it, get a suitcase, grab a few sample bottles and go to Mel- come to Melbourne and go around and pour tastes of these wines to sommeliers and restaurateurs and really ask them, you know, to, to buy these wines because nobody wanted them. Unreal. And then you fast track to now and... Um, you can't get them. I've, I've, I've <laughs> no, but that's right. This, 
you know, I'm in a privileged position to be the Victoria distributor of these wines, but I've got so much pressure on me in the lead-up to the 1st of September release of these wines because mm. they've been sold out for so long because it was very yep. low-yielding vintage in 2021. 20, I'm, yeah. I'm having conversations now with people about what we'll do when we release them and if they can do something with them and how much can they get and how much they will cost and all these conversations are happening now for September. Amazing. So he's sort of in a, he's in a, he's in a position where he's, uh, three single site Rieslings, um, you know, are up there, you know, with the top Rieslings made in Australia. Oh, well, they absolutely are. We had Jeff on um, a few months ago. He's one of my favourite winemakers and he is also such a beautiful, gentle soul. But um, they're very much, it's like uh, where there's a will, there's a way. He knew that he was making these incredible wines and and you just told the story. And, you know, any sommelier that you speak to of the top restaurants in Australia, they all say that they will not have a wine list without the Grosset Polish Hill on it or over the spring bar, oh, yeah. but, you know, it's just it's actually, it's just it, such a famous, it's one of the most famous Rieslings in Australia by far. And, yeah, once again, you know, it, it goes back to, like, the grain story before. You know, okay, that was almost not going to be made. And this this Riesling yeah. almost wasn't going to come to fruition. And so lucky these guys just have that backbone behind them that goes, no, I'm going to push this because I'm going to make it happen. And, Tony, is there a generational thing happening with Grosset as well? Are there family... Um, um, that's funny that we were talking about that the other day. Well, right now there's not because he's two children. So he's got two lovely kids who have grown up with me in their lives a lot because I used to stay in the house when I used to go over there. Right. But his son, Alexander, is um, a mer- currently a merchant banker and doing really well. And his daughter, um, Georgie, has just qualified as a lawyer and doing her first year of actual law work after doing her articles. Um, Georgie was a bit involved in the distribution of Grosset in South Australia while she was studying. And then she just got too busy, so she's given it up. So... They're sort of both in their mid to late twenties, yeah. and they're very interested, very active, and keen drinkers of wine. But right at this particular moment, they're not working um, in the grosser business. But uh, I dare say, at some point down the track, um, they will be. Um, but the way that I've sort of seen it panned out, and this is actually what happened with Emily at Jasper Hill, is that she studied school teaching and worked as a school teacher, and then she started coming and spending a bit more time at home. And then she basically came back to the vineyard to work with her father when she decided that something that she really wanted to do. And then she studied winemaking. And I think that could be something that happens with either or both of of Jeff and Stephanie's children is that they're currently pursuing their careers. But at some point, um, something might happen to where they think, you know what, actually, you know, I would love to either take on all the marketing or manage all the distribution or study winemaking or, you know what I mean, there'll be some part of the business that that they're attracted to because the business has grown so much. There's quite a few different sides of that business that, that need um, people working in them. Um, something will bring them, one of them back there at some point, I think. Well, apologies to mum and dad who are probably listening now, but Richard Grosset's got quite a good sound to it, I reckon. So if you need to adopt, I'll put my hands up, Tone, and you can you can make it happen. Um, we do need to wrap it up, but I just wanted to thank you so much, Tony Noll, for sharing your great stories with us on The Wine Show Australia and also people get on Instagram, look up L'Hotel Jetin or More Street Wines to get a ticket for that beautiful Heathcote uh, dinner coming up. Absolute pleasure to speak with you, Mr. Damani. Always good to speak with you, my friend. Good on you. Thanks so much, mate. You're a legend.